0: Hey friends, Nina here. I need to warn you ahead of time that this will not be your typical episode. There is extensive discussion of one of the hardest topics to talk about, child abuse. There will be a lot of unpleasantness, and I will do my fair share of swearing. Because today we're talking about the 2005 murder of seven-year-old Ricky Holland. I've avoided this case for a long time despite getting several requests to cover it. Then I released a version of this story for Patreon subscribers, but I keep getting requests, so here we are. And I love getting requests, so don't get me wrong. If you have show ideas or topic ideas, hit me up, host at albrightygonepodcast.com. For this episode, I updated and expanded the Patreon version to what you will hear today. Before we get into the case, a brief personal story of my own. In 2004, my husband and I adopted a waiting child from the foster care system. You see, his birth parents couldn't care for him, and in the first five years of his life, there was instability and things were not predictable. There was domestic violence in the home. He was neglected, and sometimes he went hungry. For the first five years of his life, he was in and out of foster care or living off and on with various relatives. When he was five, his parents' rights were terminated, and he was sent to foster care. He was almost seven years old when he came to live with us. We were his forever family. And I remember that his first day at home was on Good Friday, which was kind of cool. So in addition to normal kid things like Boy Scouts and swim lessons, each week he attended therapy with a skilled counselor, someone used to dealing with traumatized children. This was a service that our insurance didn't cover, and we paid for it out of pocket. And some days, our son hoarded food in his room while refusing to eat the meals that we served him. He was very thin, so I tried to put weight on him by switching from 2% to whole milk, but he was very suspicious because the milk tasted funny. He'd been offered spoiled milk or rotten food from his birth parents' fridge one too many times, so any changes in his diet... Even little things like the wrong kind of bread or a change in cereal would lead to issues. Those first couple of years that he lived with us, he ate a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, a hundred pounds of strawberries, and no shortage of chicken strips with ranch dressing. And our son, he wanted desperately for us to parent him. But he also was afraid to surrender to our rules and discipline because at such a young age, he'd been fucked over so many times by the so-called responsible adults in his life that his trust issues were large and wide. So we went from hoping that our brilliant little boy would someday go off to college and study engineering to hoping that he would love himself enough to finish high school, which he did manage to do. And I'm not sure that I can express to you just how challenging he could be or how much we loved him. We advocated for him and we were utterly exhausted by him. But I can tell you it was worth it. It was worth every minute of it. He's now in his 20s and he's happy. He's relatively well adjusted. He has a circle of friends that he trusts. He has a job that he enjoys and he has a future that he's excited about what more could a parent ask for? So this case, Ricky's case, it struck a chord with me because our son and Ricky Holland were both born in the second half of 1997. Both of these boys were born to parents who loved them but were completely unsuited to the role of parent. These were people that could barely take care of themselves, let alone a child who is dependent on them for survival. So in the summer of 2005, our son was at home with us, and across the state, Ricky Holland was living with his new family. The Holland home was a busy one. In addition to 7-year-old Ricky, his adoptive parents, 36-year-old Tim and his wife, 34-year-old Lisa, the Hollands had also taken in two of Ricky's younger half-siblings, and they had a new baby, which I believe was their biological child. And while our son was learning to swim, Spending time with the family dog and enjoying mother-son vacations to meet far-flung family, Ricky Holland was having a very different experience. So come with me to July of 2005, when a little boy vanishes from the family home, leading to a long mystery with a tragic ending. Ricky was born in September 1997 to 16-year-old Casey Gann in Southern California. In 2000, Casey is living in Jackson, Michigan. She's homeless and tells a caseworker that she cannot care for her little boy any longer. She asks that her son be placed in foster care. Ricky's birth father, a 40-year-old named Ricky Gann, he's in and out of prison on drug charges, and he's not in a position to care for young Ricky and listeners, we're not even going to get into a 40-year-old man having a baby with a 16-year-old girl. When Casey surrenders her son to the state, Ricky is sent to live with foster parents Tim and Lisa Holland. And in 2002, Casey's parental rights are terminated by a judge, and in 2003, the Hollands legally adopt Ricky, changing his name from Ricky Gann to Ricky Holland. I want to mention here that in addition to receiving a stipend from the state for parenting Ricky, the Holland family gets an additional $450 each month because Ricky is considered a special needs child. Now, my understanding is that when you adopt a child from the foster system, you get a monthly stipend to help support that child. Obviously, this varies by state and by circumstance. When we adopted our son, our family earned too much to qualify for any support, but they did provide him access to Medicaid, and as a young adult, he qualified for tuition assistance should he choose to go to college. In the fall of 2002, Ricky rides the bus to school each day to attend a Head Start program. His mother, Lisa, tells the school that Ricky is, quote, special needs and she requests that he be transported into school by the special education bus while wearing a harness. While Ricky attends Head Start, his teachers find him to be a pleasant child of average intelligence, and they decline to use the harness that Lisa sends with him each day. They don't see a need for the restraint, but Lisa insists that it's necessary. And if you aren't familiar with Head Start, it is a preschool program for kids who may have special or unique needs for their education. Sometimes those needs are as simple as low-income families who can't afford preschool. For other kids, it's an early intervention, giving them a leg up on learning so they can start kindergarten with the tools they need for success. When Ricky starts kindergarten, his mother tells the school that he's a problem at home and she wants the school to give her written updates detailing his misbehaviors at school. She still has him transported in the special education school bus, but the driver and the driver's aide both say that Ricky is never a problem during their travels. They don't see a need for him to use the special education transportation program to travel between school and home. They do notice that Ricky is often hungry and frequently asks them for food or snacks. Lisa had Ricky evaluated outside of the school setting for behavior issues at least twice, but he was not prescribed any medications, nor were there any serious concerns on the part of doctors. One thing they did notice was that Ricky went from being an average-sized child in 2000 to slipping into the 10th percentage for weight in 2004. This likely means that Ricky was underweight and slightly underdeveloped for his age. Now, in 2004, he's living with his foster family, the Hollands. He should have access to nutritious foods and good meals. It's likely that the Holland family, suddenly parenting three children, received WIC, food stamps, or access to other supplemental programs to buy groceries. Unhappy with the findings at the school, Lisa Holland will switch Ricky from one school program to another. Prior to him starting at the new school, Lisa arrives at the building with Ricky on a leash wearing a harness. She introduces her son to office staff and the principal. She's concerned that Ricky will be a difficult student. School staff suggests that they will let him get settled into school and hold a meeting with Lisa after a month has passed. And honestly, the only issue that staff notice with Ricky is that he's caught stealing food a couple of times a week. When they check his lunches, he has what can best be described as carrot sandwiches. Plain white bread with carrot slices. That's it. That's his lunch. Ricky tells them that he doesn't even like carrots, and he's very hungry. And listeners, what I don't understand, and this comes from my time working in the schools, why isn't Ricky receiving free or reduced-price lunch at school? At this time, 2004-2005, a reduced-price lunch would cost about 40 cents a day. The Hollands received more than $400 a month to care for Ricky, so it would have cost them about $2 a week to pay for reduced school lunch. Why weren't they doing that? When the school advises the family that Ricky is stealing food, Lisa explains that Ricky and his parents hitchhiked from California to Michigan when he was three, and that Ricky learned to steal and scrounge from this dark and dangerous time in his life. I don't understand how they accepted her explanation of carrot sandwiches. That's another story and one that I have not seen a satisfactory answer to. And just like they discussed before school started, a meeting is held about one month into the school year. School staff informs Lisa Holland that Ricky is progressing well and he does not qualify for special education. Now, as a mother, Lisa should be thrilled that her little boy is adjusting to the new school and his new life but she's not happy. Remember, Lisa gets extra money each month for caring for a, quote, special needs child. If Ricky isn't special needs, she loses that money. A few days after this meeting is held, Lisa withdraws Ricky from school. And in the spring of 2005, the Holland family plans a move. They leave Jackson, headed about 35 miles north to the town of Williamston and Williamston is located just east of Lansing in mid-Michigan. While the Hollands settle into the new home, a busy household of two parents and many children, the kids adjust to the neighborhood. Ricky meets some of their neighbors and develops a reputation as a hungry fella. He's always looking for a snack. He's also known as a climber, very athletic. Now the Hollands... Tim and Lisa, they see, but they don't meet their new neighbors, Jim and Jackie Wheeler. The Wheelers are employed by the Ingham County Sheriff's Department. Jim is a sergeant and Jackie is a detective. Their first interaction with the Holland family will be the weekend of July 4th, when they ask if the couple has seen their son, Ricky, because Ricky has gone missing. Before the Wheelers ever have a chance to meet Ricky, he has vanished and hundreds of civilian volunteers will turn out to search for him. And to understand the circumstances of Ricky's disappearance, we have to go back to June twentieth, two 2005. Tim Holland is on a business trip, leaving Lisa Holland home with four children, including an infant. Tim was employed as a civilian contractor for the military. And when Tim Holland returns to the house on Friday, June 24, He finds their oldest child, seven-year-old Ricky, in the living room, dressed only in a diaper. His son is dirty, he smells bad, and there's a wound on the side of his head that Tim will later describe as crusty. Ricky does not acknowledge the arrival of his father. When Tim asks Lisa about the injury to Ricky's head, she tells him that he must have hit his head at the pool. Tim doesn't pursue it further, and he doesn't attend to his son aside from changing his diaper. Ricky will stay this way, mostly unresponsive and dressed only in a diaper for days. His condition does not improve. Listeners, why is a seven-year-old wearing a diaper, and why do neither of his parents do anything about his condition? Neither of the adults in the Holland home will do anything to help Ricky, and Ricky is getting worse every day. On the evening of Friday, July 1st, Tim Holland tucks Ricky into bed and heads out to run some errands. When he returns home, he finds Ricky curled in a fetal position with red vomit next to his head. His son is cold and has no pulse. Instead of the normal reaction when you find your child lifeless, that would be running to the phone to call 911, Tim confronts Lisa, who responds by screaming at him that she didn't mean to do it. Lisa tells her husband, hey, you got to do something, and Tim responds by putting Ricky's body in a trash bag and leaving the house. What the hell, Tim? Really? Tim Holland will dump the body of his oldest child in a wetland area late that night, and while he disposes of the remains of their child, Lisa cleans Ricky's bedroom, removing any sign of blood. And the Hollands then go to sleep for the night. In the morning, they wake up to find Ricky's bed is empty, and they call the police to report that their son is missing. Oh my goodness, our son has run away. Please, send help. The community, their new community, since they've lived there only a couple of months, rallies around the Hollands. There are multiple searches, people on foot combing the community. The Oakland County Sheriff offers their helicopter as air support for the search. The Hollands will tell investigators that Ricky took his backpack, a box of fruit snacks, and some of his favorite action figures with him when he left the house. News stories about Ricky's disappearance feature photos of Tim and Lisa looking grim and serious at the Search Command Center on July 7th. The Hollands also make several appearances on local television. They are pleading for safe return of their son. Can you believe these people? I I have feelings about this, and we're we're just going to continue. So, do you remember the Hollands' neighbors, the Wheelers, Jim the sergeant, and Jackie the detective? They are suspicious of the Hollands from the start. Their interest in the couple is piqued during a bizarre exchange with the family. They'd stop by to offer neighborly support, only to find Lisa Holland yelling at her husband that he needed to dress the kids so that the family could go out for breakfast. Jim Wheeler noticed that Tim had a limp, and when he asked about the injury, Tim said he'd fallen while out searching for Ricky, which, of course, is a huge lie. Tim injured himself while getting rid of Ricky's body. When Lisa learns that the Wheelers have a variety of small animals living with them, she asks if she can bring the kids over, you know, to see the animals once all this is over. And Jackie Wheeler is understandably horrified by the casual attitude on display. Her oldest son is missing, but Lisa Holland does not act like a frantic and worried mother. In fact, she's focused on going out to breakfast and looking forward to visiting with the neighbors in a few days. When interviewed, neighbors tell police that prior to his disappearance, they'd found Ricky Holland in their kitchen stealing food. When caught, he had begged them, please don't tell his mother. One neighbor said that Ricky told them, she doesn't feed me. I don't think she loves me very much. That's what a seven-year-old child told a neighbor as he sat in their kitchen eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that he washed down with juice. And as searches for Ricky slowed, life went on at the Holland home. When the family dog died about three weeks after Ricky vanished, they dug a hole in the yard and held a makeshift funeral for the pet. Meanwhile, there's no sign of Ricky Holland. In mid-July, less than two weeks after Ricky went missing, the Hollands hire a firm called BioClean to scrub their home. When police interrupt the service and ask why the cleaning is taking place, they're told that the house was covered in fingerprint dust and this was the only way to be rid of it. But listeners, the Hollands weren't just having everything cleaned, they'd ripped out the carpeting in Ricky's room. And the owner of BioClean, he cooperated with police, pointing out where they'd found what appeared to be bloodstains As well as articles of clothing with bloodstains while working in the home. Then on July 21st, the Holland family is allowed to adopt Ricky's younger half brother, Brett. Even though Ricky is missing and the family is under suspicion, a judge allowed the adoption to proceed. You just, you can't make this up, and it's inexcusable. Ricky is missing, and the state just hands over another kid to these people. I mean, Okay, Brett was already living with the Holland family, but still. Investigators will later say that they suspected the Hollands from the beginning. Conversations with school staff and neighbors in Jackson helped paint a picture of a controlling Lisa Holland and a starved little boy. No one talked about Lisa as an attentive or affectionate mother. It was always something negative. Ricky Holland wasn't just lacking in food. He was lacking in love and affection from the woman who chose to be his mother. After giving polygraphs to Tim and Lisa, investigators again asked Tim to show where Ricky left the house from. Originally, the Hollands told police that Ricky must have climbed out his bedroom window to leave the family home. When investigators asked Tim Holland to remove the screen like Ricky did when he left, Tim Holland hesitates, then the grown man needs to use some force to move the screen. He gets it out of the window in the end. Holland is asked, you think your kid did that? And Tim says, I don't know. Then they ask him what he thinks happened to Ricky and he tells them that he doesn't know. On July 5th, 2005, seven-year-old Ricky Holland was reported missing from the Holland family home. But listeners, you and I know their story, that the little boy loaded his backpack with toys and fruit snacks before climbing out the window. That story just isn't true. And on September 6th, police arrive at the Holland home early in the morning. They have a warrant to search the property. Lisa and the four younger children are up and about. She says she will take the kids and leave so they can search. As she's getting ready to go, she retrieves a backpack from the closet. Investigators want to look inside of that bag, but Lisa hesitates. She says, this is a diaper bag, and I need it if I'm leaving with the kids. But when they open the bag, inside are diapers, wipes, fruit snacks, and a plastic bag containing an orange t-shirt. The shirt is cut up and stained with what appears to be blood. Lisa says she's never seen the baggie with the t-shirt before and doesn't know what it is or how it got there. They show the bag to Tim, and he says the same. He doesn't know anything about it. What strikes investigators as they search the Holland home is that there is no sign of Ricky. Few photos, few of his belongings, but there are blood spatters on the wall in the hallway, but when the blood is tested, it doesn't belong to Ricky. Police will even dig up the remains of the family dog to make sure nothing else is buried in the yard on Douglas Street in Leroy Township but they find no sign of Ricky in or around the split-level house that the Holland family calls home. The secrets of Tim and Lisa Holland unraveled, but not in the way that anyone expected. It started because of Tim's job. As a civilian military contractor, he was expected to adhere to certain standards. One of them was that he could not misuse his work computer. As part of the search for Ricky, Tim's work computer was searched forensically, and literally thousands of pornographic images were discovered. When adult materials were found on the machine, Tim blamed his wife. He knew that those images put his job in jeopardy, and he pleaded for leniency. He said, hey, my child is missing, I need this job. But visiting adult websites and downloading illicit content put his security clearance in jeopardy, and that meant that he could no longer be employed. When he told his wife what they found on his computer, he and Lisa fought, and she allegedly backhanded him, cutting his face with her ring. On January 26, 2006, Tim Holland filed assault charges against his wife. And honestly, investigators are thrilled to have him at the station. So they begin the delicate act of questioning him, again, about Ricky. This time, their tactics work. Tim Holland is ready to talk. He tells them that his wife, Lisa, she's abusive and controlling. She's only five feet tall, but she's brutal. He tells them about multiple incidents, times that she'd cut up his clothing, threatened him with scissors, and one time while he was in the shower, she allegedly threw a hairdryer into the shower trying to electrocute him. That night, they take Lisa into custody while she's visiting her parents. And she says, yeah, she and Tim did argue, but his claims of abuse are just not true. On January 27th, Tim Holland leads investigators to the body of his son. While the family dog received a burial and a funeral in the yard, the small body of Ricky Holland was discarded in the weeds like trash. In February of 2006, the Hollands are charged with Ricky's murder. Tim agreed to testify against his wife in return for a reduced sentence. And listeners, I'm not at all surprised that Lisa Holland blamed her husband for Ricky's death. And at Lisa's trial, the entire nightmarish story plays out. If you think the case was ugly up until this point, brace yourself because it gets worse. We know that Ricky Holland suffered a head injury while his father was out of town for work. According to Lisa, Ricky was running through the house and knocked over some of her knickknacks. Lisa's response to this was to throw a hammer at her son. The hammer hit him and knocked him to the ground. She picked up the hammer and struck him again. And I believe the second hit is what led to the crusty wound that Tim Holland saw on Ricky's face when he returned from his business trip. And as a mother, I have a lot of questions. Like, why the fuck would you throw a hammer at your child? and then hit the child with the hammer. What is the matter with you? During the trial, Tim Holland will take the stand and testify against his wife. He said that Lisa hated Ricky and that her primary focus was keeping or increasing the stipend the family received to care for him. If Ricky was not special needs, then the stipend went away. Lisa was obsessed with keeping it. She used the money to visit the salon for hair and nail appointments and to buy things for herself. And this explains why she couldn't come up with $8 a month to pay for Ricky's school lunches. Tim said that at the end of the day, he would return home from work to find Ricky tied up or bound with duct tape. Several times, the boy was tied up and standing in a puddle of urine. It was not uncommon for Lisa to discipline Ricky by striking him in the head or the back with a wooden spoon there was testimony that Ricky was seen with rope burns on his hands and arms. The marks were from times that Lisa had restrained him by tying him to his bed. It was revealed that she also used handcuffs, which Ricky didn't like because they were cold against his legs. And that might be one of the worst things I've ever heard. Mama, I don't like the cuffs. My legs are cold. This was a little boy who should have been wrapped in a blanket and given ice cream and fresh fruit and lots of hugs. And what Lisa Holland gave him was a nightmare. Tim testified that Lisa frequently made Ricky wear a diaper, even though he was completely potty trained. She also sent Ricky to school in second grade wearing diapers. At trial, experts testified that what Lisa Holland was doing or attempting to do to Ricky was Munchausen's by proxy. She repeatedly sought to have him diagnosed with behavioral or other mental health issues using school staff, doctors, and mental health professionals to maintain or increase the monthly stipend the family received for Ricky's care. During the trial, an anthropologist from Michigan State University took the stand. He testified that while Ricky did not have a skull fracture, there could have been bleeding on the brain in the days prior to his death since he'd been struck in the head with a hammer. The anthropologist also described injuries to Ricky's remains, including a fractured jaw and a broken shoulder. Denying him food, restraining him, and using physical violence to subdue or control these are acts of abuse that occurred before Ricky was left to die alone in his bed. While the other children also had limited access to food, it appears that Ricky was singled out for the worst treatment imaginable by his so called mother. On November 28, 2006, Lisa Gail Holland was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole in the death of Ricky Holland. Her husband, Tim Holland, he took a plea. He's serving a sentence of 30 to 60 years at the Oaks Correctional Facility in West Michigan. His earliest release date is January 2036, when he is 66 years old. And I sincerely hope that Ricky's siblings are somewhere safe and happy, far away from the evils of the Holland House. If you are interested in more details of this case and the investigation, the Lansing State Journal did a 14-part series, and it is really well done and definitely worth reading if you're interested. On another note, if you are looking for additional content, you can find Fresh Stories on Patreon for only $2.50 a month. Visit patreon.com slash already gone to learn more. I have also started a YouTube channel where you will find new stories each week. Right now we're featuring the 1989 murder of Tracy Kirkpatrick from Frederick, Maryland. The channel is under my name, Nina Instead, that's N-I-N-A-I-N-N-S-T-E-D. Audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and I know this was a tough episode. It was tough for me, too. But I appreciate you, and please, be safe.